little corpse flowers to horror palooza the blood spattered bride of horror podcasts i as always am sir ian dangerous aka your uncle frank and you can find me on twitter at sir ian dangerous and on instagram at sir ian dangerous welcome back to the show and welcome to episode four of season three the final episode the big bloody blowout the grand guignol finale this is it this is it for this season we're almost done. We're almost there. I've got 10 movies this week to cover because October just doesn't break down cleanly into seven-day parts all the way through. It's like dismembering a corpse and realizing your cooler isn't big enough to fit a thigh. Well, 10 movies. 10 movies. It, luckily, it means that this episode is bursting open with horror movie reviews. And, of course, the last part of our special interview with cast and producers from New Indie Horror 1BR. It's a big episode. It's huge. But if you're just finding this show... This is your first time listening. This is your first episode. Stop. Stop. Go back and listen to episode number one. Start from there. You're coming in at the end. But if that's too much work and you just want to keep listening to this right now, then fine. I'll give you a little recap. What this is about, I have been watching one movie a day all October. I do this every year. And then I come here and I tell you all about them and I let you know if I think you should watch them and where to find them. It's a lot of fun for me. It's informative for you and hopefully fun as well. And as a way to force myself to watch more varied selections, I created a few rules. I play a little game, as Jigsaw might say. Uh, So I can't just watch any movie. What are these rules, you ask? Well, I'm about to tell you, but keep in mind it is... 2020 that means everything is twice as hard so i made my rules twice as hard i made them the deadly double and uh, usually my rules are as follows i cannot watch any horror movie that i've seen in the last five years well that's now 10 years because daily double or the, the deadly double at least three languages other than english have to be represented three foreign language films deadly double now it's six films six foreign language films this year i have to watch at least One film from every decade, from the pre-1950s to the present, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, aughts, and teens. Now I've got to do two films per decade. Two! So also, a couple other little things. I can't do multiple films from the same franchise, or they count as one. Uh, Remakes are okay, but sequels, it only counts as one. And they have to be horror movies. I think that goes without saying. This is a horror movie show. I've got to do horror movies. I have to be I have to defend them as horror movies. If they're on the fringe, they might not be considered horror movies. So I have to tell them tell you why they are horror movies. So far, in case you want to know what I've watched already, in the in the three weeks prior, I watched Captain Kronos Vampire Hunter from 1974, The Endless from 2017, The Taking of Deborah Logan from 2014, The Stuff from 1985. 
Tigers Are Not Afraid from 2017, Cry of the Banshee from 1970, 1BR from 2019, and of course we have that awesome interview at the end of these shows. You can listen to more about that movie. Uh, Watch Dolls from 1987, Bride of Reanimator from 1989, The Lodge from just last year, 2019, An American Haunting from 2005, House of Frankenstein from 1944, Die, Monster, Die from 1965, The Color Out of Space, the recent version, 2019, Nicolas Cage. I watched Motel Hell from 1980, Monstrum, a great Korean film from 2018, Don't Torture a Duckling from 1972, Brain Damage from 1988, The Invisible Man, the original Invisible Man from 1938, and La Llorona from 2020, also Evil Ed from 1995. So, as of now, with those movies under my belt, I'm down to the wire. I'm down to my last 10, and I've got to fit in certain movies to fill my requirements. I need two more foreign language films. I need both of my 1950s films, and I need something else, well, at least one more movie from the 60s, 90s, and aughts. Now, do you think I can fit all those into 10 movies? Well, we'll find out this episode. And as I said, I am also looking forward to sharing the final part of the Horror Palooza interview I did with Alok Mishra, who's the producer of 1BR, and two of the cast members, Naomi Grossman, who you might know from American Horror Story, and Clayton Hoff. That'll be coming up later in the show, and we'll cap off this awesome season of horror movies. But before we get started on that final path, I would like to once again thank my musical contributors, The Sound of Horror Palooza. It is brought to you by The Tiki Creeps and 414 Beg. They are both on iTunes. Tiki Creeps, you can find them at tikicreeps.com. Uh, 414 Beg is on Instagram. That's the number 414 BEG. And he just released a great new album called Spotify. Uh, excuse me, I'll call Violence on Spotify. Uh, releasing an album called Spotify these days would be a very odd choice indeed and confuse a lot of people. No, the album is called Violence. It is on Spotify, 414 Beg, and of course, the Tiki Creeps. Now, of course, if you haven't yet, please also subscribe to horror palooza on your podcast app of choice hit that subscribe button leave a review a rating share us with your friends get the word out about this nice little show because we may be doing more in the coming months we are also on the orbital jigsaw network at orbitaljigsaw.com and if you like pro wrestling and who doesn't Check out Busted Wide Open, where Nick Howell and I run down the news and hottest topics about WWE, AEW, NXT, New Japan, and more. That's on Twitch TV, twitch.tv forward slash Busted Wide Open, and at BWO Podcast on Twitter. So, a lot of information, and really all we're here for is to talk about movies. So let's get on with it and talk about the final 10 movies of Season 3 of Horror Palooza. Starting with day 22, I watched a Korean film called Bedeviled, and that's Bedeviled with two L's from 2010. I did have to rent it, but I think it was worth it. It's directed by Jang Chol Su, and it was actually a really big hit in Korea. This is a this is a grim, disturbing, and unsettling film, and of course I say all of those things as compliments, but it contrasts a selfish and petty city girl 
with her sweet but naive childhood friend who still lives in this remote island uh, village that they both grew up in. Now, the, the naive younger friend, whose name is Boknam, is in this brutally, brutally abusive marriage while also being regularly sexually assaulted by her husband's brother, and the local women actively support all this. And this dynamic is revealed to us fairly quickly, and then they really, they re- they really show it to you a lot. Uh, so that the most of the film has plenty of time to dwell on this unpleasant situation and how little the city girl really gives a shit about it. So for the, the majority of the early runtime, this movie is really unpleasant to watch. But the horror of this movie doesn't come from anything supernatural or spooky, though there are times when you almost think something like that is going to happen, usually because of the semi-magical reality that Bucknam lives in, but from the depravity of the relationships between the characters. And at a certain point, things do break down and some really nasty things happen. And the punctuations of violence feel more like a breath that's being released after a long time holding it. They're, they're actually a relief after the suffocating intensity of the depiction of life on this island. And it is not a fun movie to watch. And I'm, I'm, I'm frankly shocked that this was a major hit. It'd be like if, if Lars von Trier's Antichrist had been a box office smash here in the U.S. Although, t- to be clear, this movie isn't quite as depraved or visceral as, as Antichrist, and it's certainly not as beautifully filmed, but it does have a lot of the same level of intensity. Uh, it is, it's worth a watch if you can stomach some, some really intense sexual violence and the, the worst things that humans can do to other humans. I have to admit, I, I didn't like this movie very much at the halfway point, but it did bring it back around with a very poignant ending after a slightly unbelievable but effective fourth act. It's, it, there, it does go a little bit extra in this movie. Also, I got to say, there's a kill in this movie that is as satisfying as any that you'll see in your average South Korean revenge flick, which is a high bar indeed. So if you've got a strong stomach, uh, you can go check out Bedeviled. It's worth a look. Next up on day 23, I checked out V, V-I-Y, V from 1967. You can find that on Shudder, directed by Konstantin Yershov and Georgi Krupchyov. It's actually the first Russian film that was the first Russian horror film that was made under communist rule. So it's, it's kind of a unique film, and I'm, I'm shocked they were able to make this, frankly. And I, I'll admit, I've never read the short novel by Nikolai Gogol that this odd movie is based on, but apparently it's, this is a fairly faithful adaptation and one that I might have appreciated more on first viewing if I had read that story. For, for one thing, the V itself, which you know shows up in the movie and it's kind of weird, but it's actually apparently an invention of Gogol's. It's some sort of Ukrainian demon or evil gnome king with he's got these eyelids that are so heavy he has to have help opening them or he's, you got to prop them up with pitchforks. <laughs> the kicker is, once his eyes are open, he can see everything. So I guess that's kind of an upside. It's it's kind of like an early two thousands X Men power. Actually, yes, you can see everything, but you have these giant eyelids. It's a twist. But the, the V itself doesn't show up till, the, till the, about the end of the movie. And it's around the time things really go off the rails in this movie. And it's really cool when it does. Instead, the rest of this movie is about a 16th century Russian seminary student. He's attacked by a witch. But then, because of plot twists, he has to protect her corpse for three nights and meanwhile, she's resurrecting every night and trying to kill him. 
Now, I was prepared for the incredibly striking visuals and incredible creative, spe- the, the, these very creative special effects, because I'd seen clips from this movie, and the final scenes, frankly, are legendary for being totally bonkers. But what I wasn't ready for, this movie's actually really funny. And on top of that, it's intentionally funny. Now, it's really, it's more whimsical than laugh out loud jokes, really. It's, but it's it, in a movie with this subject matter, and, and frankly, a movie that's Russian, and it's about religion and faith and morality and human weakness. Well, you, you don't expect that kind of movie to have the kind of playfulness and the light touch that V has. I actually found that I loved this movie. It's not fast-paced. It's not action-packed. So don't go into it expecting a thrill ride. But it's a blast for fans of watching older cinema, discovering all the fun tricks you can pull with film. For anybody who likes a, a, a good creepy ghost story, uh, this has a lot of nice creepy moments. The witch and her satanic buddies in this film are played in kind of like this haunted house sort of way. The, the church that these confrontations take place in, it is set dressed to a standard that would make Hammer Horror employees weep with joy. And the way that the witch rises to attack our goofy protagonist is like a haunting gone extreme. It's great. I had a lot of fun with this movie, and I can see it becoming an October staple of mine. It would, it would make a great double feature with like Hexen or Black Sunday by Mario Bava, which is actually loosely based on the same story. So... If you're curious, definitely check out V again. It is on Shudder. On day 24, I went and started to knock out one of my 1950s movies. I went and watched I Bury the Living from 1957. It's currently on Amazon Prime, directed by Albert Band. And while you would expect, with a title like that, to get a zombie movie or some sort of macabre corpse-obsessed B-movie with bad effects and worse acting, you'd actually be shocked to discover that I Bury the Living is actually much closer to a blown-up episode of The Twilight Zone and and that it's actually a fantastically well-acted and well-shot and brilliantly directed little piece of paranoid semi-supernatural cinema. Now, the movie's about a guy named Robert Kraft, not the Patriots owner and massage parlor handjob aficionado, He's a local businessman played by Richard Boone, who I've only ever seen be in, uh, like a cowboy before. Although I did hear him as Smog in the Rankin-Bass cartoon version of The Hobbit as a child. So have a connection there. But he is on a committee of men who are in charge of the local cemetery. And as a result, he's voted to run the cemetery for a certain period of time, during which he finds out that if he marks a grave on the large map of the cemetery that hangs on the office wall for someone who is alive they will end up prematurely dead. He has the power of life and death in his hands and these little black pins that mark if someone's dead. So it's a fairly straightforward setup. But the winning aspect of the movie is in the Hitchcockian build of tension and anticipation as the movie goes on. There are several incredibly nail-biting moments, even for jaded movie watchers. And Boone's riveting and confident performance is the anchor of a movie that could have easily been so much less in less deft hands. There, now, there's certainly an aspect of camp and cheese here. They got, a lot, uh, they got away with a lot more in the 50s as far as unbelievable line readings and silly scene setups, but there's also a maturity to this movie that you don't see 
in a lot of the other schlock of the time. And also there's an artistry to how the feeling of dread and inexorable doom builds over the film's runtime until the climax. And that's, that, that's from the lighting to the editing to the way that band decides to not film realistically but expressively, having reality shift and bend to underscore tension and focus, creating a world that Kraft lives in that shows us his mental decline, not necessarily the literal state of the world around him. But there is one major flaw in this film, the ending, or rather the big reveal at the climax is just a huge steaming dud it is a silly contrived unbelievable bit of horseshit that it threatens to undo any goodwill the film had built until that point it's like having an amazing dinner and the waiter farts next to your table it's almost enough to ruin everything however the rest of the film is so brilliantly realized and surprisingly chilling that i've got to give this movie a pass for something that usually is a deal breaker for me the rest of it is just too good to let something like that ruin it for me. It's passable. Definitely check out I Bury the Living. It was, it was surprisingly good for a 1950s movie. Next up, on day 25, I watched Impetigor. And you can find that on Shudder. It is actually an Indonesian movie directed by Joko Anwar. He wrote it and directed it. And it stars Tara Basro, who was also in Anwar's previous Indonesian hit horror movie, Satan's Slaves. So... Impetigore is a actually very surprising and truly spooky bit of cinema from a part of the world that a shocking number of people overlook for their cinematic achievements. If you want proof that Indonesia can knock your socks off, here is your movie. I don't, I don't know what the fuck the title means, but there is gore in this movie, so maybe that has something to do with it. All I know is the plot is one you've heard before. A young woman returns to her hometown or small village after years away and finds that the other villagers aren't exactly welcoming. They want to kill her. But there are so many layers that are on top of that basic story that you tend to forget the fact that this has been done before because also Anwar does it so well. The atmosphere and the light in this movie has to be seen to be believed. It's incredible. And Anwar makes even the most basic scenes seemed terrifying with his use of tension and timing as well as his choice of shots and sounds it's great he's a fantastic horror director then it also helps that he shot this on location in several small villages in indonesia you can feel the lived-in nature of a lot of these spaces and from an international interest point of view if you've never experienced rural indonesia it's fascinating to see how closely Nature entwines itself around the human structures and how the jungle even starts to reclaim some of them. But as far as horror, this movie also delivers in spades with several nasty scenes of brutality and some psychological tricks Anwar uses to make us feel like we've seen something or seen more than we actually have. It's actually a very cruel little movie in places. And even though it gets a bit a bit goofy towards the end with some supernatural special effects that just don't quite pass muster. There's enough creepy shit here to satisfy most people who just want to watch a movie that makes them feel scared or horrified. Now, that being said, this movie could have been scarier, and the reason it falls flat on that count is the way that it's just... It's got a too convoluted third act. 
It reveals a ton of exposition and backstory in very uninspired ways and at a pace that leaves us desperately trying to catch up. It's not impossible to understand what all has happened, but it does take us out of the momentum of the plot at a point where the tension should be ratcheting up to its highest. And instead, a lot of air gets let out of the room as we're basically given all the explanations at once for all the goings-ons. So the, and the movie never really recovers, and the climax falls a bit flat as a result. However, it does kind of save itself with this great Friday the 13th slash Carrie-style ending that I thought was one of my favorite scares of the film. So overall, a very good, if flawed, horror film, and one worth watching for the visuals, the atmosphere, as well as some very fine acting from its cast. So definitely check out Impetigor. It is streaming, as I said, on Shudder. Day 26, I went back to the 50s and did The Killer Shrews, which, of course, is on Amazon Prime. It's all over. The Killer Shrews, directed by Ray Kellogg, who also did The Giant Gila Monster the same year and around the same time he did this movie. And yes, you've probably seen this movie all over since it is in the public domain. It's in every horror collection ever. Mystery Science Theater even did a famous parody of it in, in actually one of my favorite episodes in season four. But I haven't sat down and watched it in forever. And because of the memory of the killer shrews themselves actually genuinely giving me chills as a child, I decided to give it another shot. Now, remember a couple of movies ago, I was talking about how mature and non-schlocky I Bury the Living was, which was ironic given its schlocky title, and how it was exemplary compared to the other horror movies of the time? Well, here's a movie from two years later that proves that point. Holy shit, this is a bad movie. But to be clear, it's also very watchable and quite entertaining. If you like the kind of movie you can laugh at, not with. And actually, it might be even better consumed in its MST3K version since you get the added bonus of hearing the movie get torn apart while you watch it, and you can just sit back and relax. But I didn't do that. I watched the damn thing in its original glory, complete with boring, talky first 40 minutes, relentless use of the living room bar. I mean, seriously, how did only one character get drunk in this movie? We'll never know. And it's hideously bad black character, complete with Jim Crow patois and his, of course, early demise. Uh, also, also the shrews then show up, and, and and really, who looked at a shrew, a shrew, and went, "That'll put butts in seats." Uh, and, and these shrews in the movie are either muppets or they're dogs with wigs. But it, I guess at least they have venomous fangs. Uh, I'm sorry, poisonous. Fangs. They make sure to define that, which at least helps dispatch characters faster than actually getting eaten, I suppose. I mean, and let's not talk about the brilliant way in which our heroes finally escape. Uh, it, <laughs> it's terrible. It's, it's genuinely terrible. But those shrews, those muppets, those dogs in wigs scared the crap out of me as a young lad. There's something about the dead eyes and the big fangs, the big poisonous fangs, plus the dog versions, they move very quickly and disturbingly intensely. And for young me, I bought into the idea that these things could actually fuck you up. 
Now, the reveal of the poisonous fangs is actually kind of chilling, if you want it to be, as it's only after a character has died suddenly from it. Now, don't worry. It's just the Mexican guy who barely speaks English and looks like Super Mario ate a few too many mushrooms. (laughs) This movie. It's only after he dies that we find out it's a thing, but it makes the creepy shrews even more scary. You know, if, if you're a young, innocent kid who's also scared of the Gorn in Star Trek, this could actually freak you out a bit. But look, the movie's a joke, and it's a cliche. And it's also a time capsule of the cheesy 50s B-movie scene. If you haven't seen it, it's worth a look for a chuckle or two. Or if you're a Dukes of Hazard fan and you want to see the sheriff back when he was sort of a leading man, you can check it out. Or if you have a thing for people standing around and drinking their way through a hurricane in a giant killer shrew infestation, you might dig it. Oh, and it's, it's actually also worth it for the greatest absolute howler of a last line in film history where our hero, back on his tiny boat, spoiler alert, grabs the hot blonde in front of her father and straight up says, I'm going to pork your daughter, pal. And scene. That's how it ends. Hey, I'm going to F your daughter. Cool. And credits. Oh, my. But I wasn't done there. Oh, no. I went to 1992 next on day 27 and watched the funnily named Amityville 1992. It's about time. That's the name of the movie. Amityville 1992. It's about time. It's on Shudder, directed by Tony Randall. Uh, R-A-N-D-E-L, not the other way around. And you may be saying to yourself, this seems like a random choice for a horror movie. The Amityville series is not exactly the most venerable in all of horror history. And a lesser-known direct-to-video early 90s entry in an already less-than-stellar bunch of films. Why would I watch this? Well, for one, it's directed by Tony Randall, who also did Hellraiser 2, Hellbound, Ticks, and The utterly goony fist of the north star live action movie from 1995 so that was a, that was a way in the second it stars the magnificently seen chewing stephen mocked who you may recall as the evil foreman in the underrated stephen king adaptation of night shift and also i saw some still images of some wonderful early 90s gore in this movie so i had to check it out and i'm here to report it sucks. It sucks. No, but not unwatchably so. Not unwatchably so. In fact, much like Killer Shrews, I had a lot of fun watching this overblown, illogical, punishingly stupid and inconsistent potboiler of a movie. And it would be ripe for a Rift Tracks or an MST3K destruction. So there's so much unbelievably campy and silly shit in this movie. And even so, there are some, even so with the, all of that, There are some solid acting performances and some nice, disgusting moments to sweeten the pot. And Macht is great and unhinged as Jacob Sterling, a dad who brings home a clock that lived in the original Amityville house and may have belonged to a medieval French torturer of children as well or some such nonsense. And the clock quickly takes over the house and starts affecting him, his prudish, innocent daughter, and his cartoonishly rebellious son, who's actually played with a bunch of pol- a very believable pathos and angst by relative unknown Damon Martin, who only has a couple of film credits, including this, Ghoulies and Pee-wee's Big Adventure, and who now apparently is a producer instead. Uh, it, this clock also haunts Sterling's ex-girlfriend and her boyfriend. I know it's a bit 
confusing, who is trying, she's trying to care for him after a neighborhood dog under the spell of the clock or something attacks him. Now, the ex-girlfriend is played by stunningly gorgeous and surprisingly talented Baywatch Babe and former Miss USA and Miss Universe Sean Weatherly, who actually has a lot to chew on character-wise as a conflicted woman who can't let her ex out of her life but also isn't 100% enamored with her new guy, played obnoxiously by Survivor regular Jonathan Penner. This guy is a complete fucking tool, and you cannot wait for him to get his. Seriously, he's one of the most kill-this-guy-already characters I've seen in a while. But the dynamic between Weatherly's character and Sterling, at least the times it's normal and not fucked up by clock-induced psychosis, is surprisingly nuanced and complex for a movie of this caliber. It's a little thing, but it's noteworthy in a movie this bogged down by stupid plot devices and dumb deaths. And seriously, the old woman kill in this movie made me feel like I had lost a hefty percentage of brain cells. There's, it's, it's a little thing. But I'm glad that it's there because those character moments helped keep me invested when the horror wasn't. Uh, But also, Dick Miller's in this, too. Dick Miller's got a cameo, so I immediately popped for that as well. But that's it for the upside. So check it out if you want to see a dumb, goopy, so-bad-it's-funny movie about an evil clock and the poor, stupid people it tries to, I don't know, kill or possess or corrupt or something i could never quite figure out the clock's motives or or why it hoped to achieve them or what they were it doesn't matter the movie ends with a plot twist that's so obvious yet stupid that a sixth grader would beavis and butthead laugh at it and it even throws us the subtitle of the movie at the end in a character's line <sighs> which means it's about time for day 28 which was Would You Rather from 2013, which is currently on Netflix, directed by David Guy Levy. And you may have played this party game before. You may have, you may have seen Graham Norton do it on TV or some such thing. But somewhere, sometime, a writer by the unlikely name of Stefan Schlachtenhaufen finally found out about this game. This game, Would You Rather. And his first instinct was to say... What if it was to the death? And that's the premise of this mean little movie, and it's a thin premise at best. A rich, supposed philanthropist traps a group of people desperate for money around a dinner table and proceeds to challenge them to win the game of Would You Rather or die. Or mm, not necessarily die, but if you're rendered unable to continue, you might as well be dead, frankly. And if it sounds a bit torture-porny, it is. But it's never exploitative or gory in the way that a lot of the standards of the subgenres tend to be. And it often is actually quite restrained in order to give us more time to consider the anguish and moral dilemmas of the contestants involved. So not as bad as some torture porn films, which really do linger on the gore itself. And the contestants themselves are played by... One of the most insane casts I've seen collected around a dinner table in some time. The lead girl is played by former teen star and pitch-perfect lead Brittany Snow. And she's joined by Enver Gyoka, but by from Agent Carter, 
among other things. Uh, John Hurd from Cat People and Shud, the uh, Crab Man from My Name is Earl, Eddie Steeples, he was also Rubber Band Man, whatever, he's the man. Robin Lord Taylor from Gotham, he plays Penguin there. Rob Wells from Trailer Park Boys, and Sasha Gray from, well, if you've seen her films, you know damn well where she's from. But it's a crazy cast. And this movie is really held together by one man, though. And, and it succeeds solely because of him. And that's Jeffrey Goddamn Combs. And yes, that is actually his middle name. Goddamn, it's on his birth certificate. That's right. The psychophilanthropist and host of the macabre party is played by the reanimator himself, Mr. Poe, Mr. Multiple Roles on the same show of Star Trek, that guy. And he's, well, he's rather unsurprisingly brilliant. He's congenial. He's friendly, terrifying, obtuse, relentless, diabolical. He's quite funny and all sometimes in the same scene. And he is the real reason to see this movie. And, and frankly, I won't rate this movie terribly highly amongst all the films I've seen over the years or even this year. It, it's somewhat basic. It's not terribly inventive. And it's not terribly surprising. And even it's pitch black fuck you of an ending, while certainly a, a strong choice, it feels like a bit of a soft landing, all things considered. And as I said earlier, it's not even that gory either, so there's not even that as far as basic horror pleasures, if you're looking for that sort of thing. It's not saying anything new. It's not making any kind of radical statement. It's not deep, and it's not even that smart. But it is an actor's movie, first and foremost. And from that standpoint, it is a success. It's worth a look for the incredible cast and watching them writhe as they find out just what depraved and despicable deaths Mr. Combs is, forced, is going to force them to sink to, and watching him enjoy it all may be the most enjoyable thing about this movie, which in and of itself is pretty sick and twisted in a good way. So I actually do recommend Would You Rather. It's a, it's a good, twisted little watch. But again, don't expect the sun, moon, and stars. So on day 29, I decided to go back to the 80s because I had the opportunity to went on Amazon Prime and rented, paid money, to watch 976 Evil. That's right, 976 Evil, directed by none other than Robert Englund. And yes, you heard that right. This movie is directed by Freddy Krueger himself at the height of his Krugerdom. And he directs the fuck out of this movie, sometimes for good, sometimes for bad. And I'm going to go way out on a limb here because this is crazy. But I loved this movie. Now, it is flawed as all hell, and its premise of a paid call telephone number that allows you to make deals with the devil and how that affects the relationship between two cousins is pretty damn silly. And the special effects are sometimes bad mood and werewolf transformation levels of god-awful. But I will be damned if there isn't some genuine quality lurking under the cheesy 80s surface here. Now, much of that quality comes from the acting. And yes, a lot of it is hammy, over-the-top, 80s horror stuff, but you actually have a lot of real humanity lurking behind some of these characters. Now, the two main characters, the high school-aged cousins Spike and Hoax, and they're played by Patrick O'Brien, who did this and the sequel and apparently disappeared, and Stephen Joffreys, who also played Evil Ed in Fright Night and then spent the 90s doing gay porn, they're both extremely engaging characters who rise above their stereotypical tropes by being given some serious internal grounding by the actors. Now, Leonard, or Spike, 
as he's called around school because he smokes, rides a motorcycle, and does shit that hardened 30-year-old gamblers would balk at, is the typical bad boy. He's got a ponytail, a bad habit of hanging with the wrong crowd, and couldn't give a shit about the girl who digs him. Hoax, on the other hand, is a dorky innocent. He's halfway to Forrest Gumpland, but with an undercurrent of repression because of his hilariously overbearing mother, played with the scene-stealing mania by Academy Award winner and real-life crazy cat lady Sandy Dennis, who actually ended up passing away three years after this movie. And no word on it for 20 cats ate her, like they do in this movie, spoiler alert. But Sandy Dennis, was she was always an odd actor. But here, England lets her run wild, and she goes with it. And it's awesome. And England lets a lot of the cast run wild, really. Many scenes feel improvisational, and there are a lot of times to let even the lesser characters have moments. And England lets them have them, whether it's uh, Freddy's Nightmares and Future Freddy's Dead star Leslie Dean, or Back to the Future thug J.J. Cohen as one of Spike's less-than-savory acquaintances, or Robert frickin' Picardo as the guy who runs the toll number warehouse, and he has a funny little hairdo and some post-nasal drip. They all get moments to be alive on film and it's jarring when the movie shifts back into standard script gear uh o'brien in particular has an understated magnetism to him he's playing a cliche 80s bad boy tough guy but he alone out of the dozens of portrayals i've seen actually has a nuance to him he actually has a, a cool factor while retaining an element of lost boyness and the combination of of actually being cool with feeling kind of lost makes him a character you can believe in especially since the movie flips your expectations of his character and his innocent cousin's character right on your head so it does set that up very well now don't get me wrong i am not saying this is a great movie by any stretch it has massive logic and plot holes and as i mentioned some special effects are god awful but england's camera does get some daring and flamboyant shots so it's visually exciting within its limited budget. The acting is a standout, and frankly, there's an energy and a fun to this movie that only the best cheesy 80s horror movies have. The difference is, I feel most people have overlooked this movie, and I think it's time they go back and reassess it. I think it's truly underrated, underappreciated, worth a look, 976 evil, don't don't expect Gone with the Wind, but it is, I think, worth a look if you like 80s horror movies. So we're on to day 30, and I needed one more movie from the aughts, and I got it by watching May from 2002, directed by Lucky McKee. And it's, it's easy to dismiss May as like a Silver Lake hipster version of Maniac. Uh, wry, winking, ironic, too cool, intentionally weird take on a trope that's been around for decades, and that is the isolated freak with a heart who just wants to be loved, but ends up destroying everything to do so. And it would be easy to dismiss this movie as that. And I found several times I almost did, because fuck, this movie is just too precious and full of itself sometimes. But luckily I didn't. Because ultimately, McKee hits a fantastic note with this movie, and it's all because of his main actress, Angela Bettis. And Bettis works a lot with McKee. If you followed either of their work, You know they collaborate often, but this is where it started, and you can see why they became obsessed with each other. McKee lets his camera linger on Bettis, giving her extra time in every scene to wring out every last drop 
of awkward, emotional hand-wringing, and she does her part by being utterly, absolutely believable. As the ultimate strange girl, a socially awkward misfit with a lazy eye, a special untouchable doll at home, and a weird habit of becoming obsessed with particular parts of people's bodies. And while this movie never truly goes as batshit insane as I expected, I'm sure for many it will be more than enough. And the squeamish should definitely be careful. May is, as you would expect, a ticking time bomb of a character, and she can only take so much social rejection and personal violation before she goes full carry and decides to just take matters into her own scalpels. Now, it is a character study, but it's hampered by the fact that McKee, like quite a few of his contemporaries at the time, is sometimes more interested in giving us forced, quirky moments instead of real human interaction. And it makes this movie feel more funky and odd, but it also creates an emotional distance. And May's ultimate breakdown, while still affecting, might have been more so if McKee weren't so busy trying to make jokes and visual gags. Anna Ferris, as the nymphomaniac lesbian receptionist where May works with Borat's lawyer, is one of the bigger offenders here, where she's such a cartoon You can't tell if she's being sarcastic or thinking she's still in a scary movie. And it's too bad, since these relationships that May has create the emotional subtext of the film. And even having her love interest, played by Jeremy Sisto, turn out to be a typical douchey guy after several scenes where he seems to be sensitive and aware comes across as forced or arbitrary as opposed to earned. But I'm kvetching about a movie I actually really liked because much like the moral of the story itself, I can look past this movie's flaws to see the excellence of the whole. It truly is affecting, and the ending had me giving the old fist-clenching nod of approval as I felt it was the perfect time to stop telling the story, and it was a nice way to go out on it. So I guess overall I can say I liked it, and maybe I'm just sensitive to the smell of hipsterdom from years of living in Los Angeles. I don't know. All I know is it's worth a watch. And it deserves its place as a launching pad for a new voice in horror and on and one of the standout horror movies from the aughts. So definitely worth a look. Check out May. And day 31, the final day, the final movie of Horror Palooza for season three was The Invisible Man. From this year, from 2020, written and directed by Lee Winnell. That's right, the guy from Saw. I decided for the final night, to watch the remake of a movie I had watched earlier this marathon. And I had heard a lot about this movie. I had wanted to see it in theaters right before everything went upside down this year, and it never happened. But I finally did, uh, largely because I had watched the the original earlier in Horrorpalooza. And I'm, I'm so glad. I'm so glad I finally did watch this remake. Because this is a fantastic mainstream horror movie with some truly bone-chilling moments, some cutting social commentary, and an unsurprisingly scintillating performance by Elizabeth Moss. That woman can do more with a small facial tick than most actors can do with their whole body. And luckily, she's not hidden here by a white cowl and a red cloak like in Handmaid's Tale. Winnell smartly lets his camera hold on her face while she's feeling things and of course she feels through every pore and jutted jaw of her body so we know exactly what's going on inside her head 
She is one of the most brilliant actresses working today. And the dance between the brilliant actor and the smart director fills this movie. And I, I have to say, I didn't think of Winnell as a smart director before this. Although he showed with, with Upgrade he can do action movies and make it fun and his horror chops are legit as the man who wrote the first three Saw movies, a.k.a. the good ones. Uh, but here, his camera is weaponized. He lets his actors live in the space, but he places his camera and moves it where it will be the most effective to bring out what he wants. And usually, that's fear of being watched. But it's also elegant and sometimes aggressive, and sometimes playful, and sometimes subtle. Uh, sometimes it's, it's to a fault what he does with his camera and some of the more action-y scenes, but it's often original, and it's very effective. And with a cast like this, this all is a recipe for success. But also, a part of that recipe is an incredibly intelligent and thoughtful updating of the concept and execution of a remake of the earlier film, which was based on an H.G. Wells science fiction story. And the part that remains from that story is the idea of a scientist who discovers how to become invisible. And he's not a nice guy. That's it. In this movie, we shift from the story of the invisible man himself to that of his girlfriend, or rather, the woman who no longer wants to be his girlfriend, who, of course, is Elizabeth Moss. And that's a problem because the invisible man himself is a controlling narcissist sociopath who can't imagine someone leaving him or, or, or something being out of his control. And the movie so elegantly sets up the whole story in the first 20 minutes, almost wordlessly, and gives us an idea of how far this guy is willing to go to get her back, but also what a monster of a human he must be. And if anyone has ever been in a relationship that is emotionally abusive or filled with gaslighting, or controlling and mentally or physically restrictive, then this movie will trigger you. It's not an if, it's a matter of which scene will get you. The Invisible Man makes it his mission to ruin his ex's life, and really, the horror of this movie comes a lot from, really, who could stop him? If he wants to make the rest of the world think his ex is crazy, if he wants to gaslight the world, he can do it more effectively than any social media barrage or traditional stalking, this movie finds a new way to give him his invisibility powers, and it does it in a way that is so close to not being science fiction, you might as well call it near futurism. So it all feels chillingly real. And the paranoia and the fear created by this scenario is suffocating in this film. And that's even before the very effective and earned jump scares. This is a movie that is truly unnerving and scary because it makes us think about something that many of us have experienced or been close to someone who's experienced, and it ramps that scenario up to 11. Now, the hope is the catharsis will come with the hero fighting back against the monster, and Moss in this movie is a badass survivor who doesn't ever do anything terribly dumb as far as horror characters go, and in fact, turns the tables as many modern heroines do, think you're next or ready or not. So, this functions as the best horror movies do, as a way to stare our monsters and our demons right in the face and spit blood back at them after they've given us their worst. It's empowerment by projection, and this film is a, is a post-me-too flex for anyone who's ever felt like they've been unheard or unseen, unseen in the sociological way, not in the literal creeping around your house, invisible man kind of way. Now, that's not to say the movie's perfect. There are some cliched twists and character interactions, and the ending didn't quite hit for me the way I think they intended, and 
It wasn't quite the big statement ending I had envisioned, but the point that it made was definitely in line with this film's basic theme. And it does a respectable job of following the metaphor of how to finally leave an abusive relationship to its relative conclusion. So if the movie's going to ramp everything else up to 11, why not this aspect as well? So on further reflection, I think the ending is, is fine, but the rhythm and the momentum of the movie trips a little bit in the last 20 minutes. I'll put it that way. It's, it's a fine ending, but it, the, the pacing's a little awkward. But ultimately, Invisible Man is a must-watch. Not only because it's a good horror movie, which it is, but because it's a good movie. You don't have to be a horror fan to watch it. You don't have to have seen the 1930s version. You don't have to have seen Hollow Man. In, in fact, just don't see Hollow Man. If you want to watch Verhoeven, go watch Total Recall or Starship Troopers or Black Book. But if you want to watch a movie which creates a believable scenario based on actual human horror in a world that's just a sparkling atomic ball hair width to the left of our own, then this is your movie. And that is it for Horrorpalooza Season 3, at least for the Marathon of Movies part. Even with the Deadly Double, I was able to get all of my requirements satisfied, at least until next time. And who knows? Maybe Horrorpalooza will be doing more instead of just the yearly marathon. Stay tuned. Find out about that. So we have come to the end of the movie marathon portion. And to just recap, this year, overall, I watched Captain Kronos Vampire Hunter. You can watch that on Hulu and Prime. I watched The Endless. That's on Netflix. The Taking of Deborah Logan. It's on Prime. The Stuff is on Prime. Tiger's Not Afraid is on Shudder. Cry of the Banshee, don't watch it, but it's on Prime if you need to. 1BR on Netflix, go check that out. Dolls is on Prime. Bride of Reanimator is also on Prime. The Lodge is awesome, it's on Hulu. An American Haunting is not awesome, it's on Hulu. House of Frankenstein, you can rent that. Die Monster Die is on Amazon Prime. Color Out of Space is on Shudder. Motel Hell is on Amazon Prime. Monstrum is on Shudder. Don't Torture a Duckling is on Amazon Prime and Shudder. Brain Damage is on Shudder. The Invisible Man from 1938, uh, you can rent or you can find it on Shudder. La Llorona is uh, also on Shudder. Evil Ed is on Amazon Prime. I had to rent Bedeviled, but it's worth a look. V is on Shudder. I Bury the Living is on Prime. Impedigore is on Shudder. The Killer Shrews is on Prime if you feel like punishing yourself. Amityville 1992 is on Shudder if you feel like punishing yourself. Would You Rather is on Netflix. 976 Evil. I had to rent, but I think it's worth a look. May was a rental. And Invisible Man is currently actually on HBO Max. So that was a lot of fun. And we had quite a few hidden gems this year. And one of those that I was so glad that I liked was 1BR, which I was lucky enough to see before my interview with producer Alok Mishra and two of the cast members, Naomi Grossman and Clayton Hoff. And you should watch it before you listen to this interview because spoilers abound. It's on Netflix, so go watch it. And if you have watched it, then go listen to parts one and two of this interview. And if you've done that, then here we go with part three. And we've talked in the earlier parts of the interview about the production issues with 1BR, some of the ways the movie got made, some of the philosophy behind it. But now I want to do something a little bit different. I want to have a little bit of fun. Uh, and if it's okay, I want to ask the actors a couple of questions here, starting with Clayton, Clayton Hoff. I want to know if there was one horror movie character in all the history of horror cinema that you could play, who would it be? 
Oh gosh. Um, let me see here. I, I would be Chucky. I, I would replace the doll with Chucky. Yeah. You do the Brad Dourif role. Oh, oh, is that Brad Dourif? Uh, no, I mean, actually the doll it, itself, you know, I'd yeah. be the doll. <laughs> Brad Dourif's only in the first at, movie. It's okay. Oh, uh, okay. I'm sorry. My horror knowledge is, is really <laughs> bad, not, but I, if I could be. Well, it's okay. It's a, it's, it's why it's a horror show. <laughs> <laughs> but now I, would, okay, I, so I would tell you, I would tell you, he should be a, he should be a Freddy Krueger. I think, I think oh. Clayton would be an amazing Freddy Krueger. You're just saying that because he's wearing Thank a you. black and red plaid shirt right I, now. Allegedly. 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 Yes. <laughs> so Naomi, actually, I had a similar question for you, but it's actually a little bit more specific. Mm -hmm. And it's not really horror related. I'll get to horror in a second. But I actually wanted to ask, if you were given the opportunity to play in a biopic, either Lucy Arnaz or Carol Burnett, who would you play? But you can only pick one. You can only pick oh one. Oh, my God. But you're doing, the, you're doing the biopic of one of them. That is cruel to make me choose between those two. Why don't you just add, add Lily Tomlin in there? We can add Lily Tomlin. We can okay. We can make a trifecta, but you can't. You never. If you play one of them, you can never play any of the other ones if they do biopics. Well, you know what? I am actually working on a new one-woman show right now, and Lucy is actually a character in it. So technically, I've already cast myself as Lucy. I might as well play her in the biopic. You know what I mean? I'm already doing the. The heavy lifting. I actually met uh, Lucille Ball's um, son, uh, Desi Arnaz Jr. Uh, he runs a movie theater in Boulder City, Nevada, um, which is so weird. I, I ended up, I was in a film festival there. Uh, it was called um, the Damn Short Film Festival because it's close to the dam, the, the Boulder Dam. Anyway, uh, I had like a, a, some short films in there and I ended up meeting him and he was so sweet. He actually said, I, I remind mom, which I was like, oh my God, I, you know, they, um, we like to joke, uh, the, the three of us, um, about, uh, the, I happen to live in Peter Lawford's last residence. Peter Lawford was a, you know, of course, a member of the Rat Pack. Uh, he had like, you know, relations with all the starlets in town, including Lucille Ball. In fact, so um, I, I, don't get me wrong. When I was like poised to ink the deed with my mortgage lender, I pretty much assumed that like Lucille Ball had had sex in my bedroom, and that's pretty much what sold me on it. Later, I came to found out that like. Peter had hit rock bottom, but by the time he'd moved in there, like there was no action going on. Like the only action was between Peter and like his like male vibrator, um, which is called an AccuJack, which was pretty much his only friend at the end. But anyway, I digress. I'm, I'm going with Lucille. So do you think that he's your friendly ghost or who is your friendly ghost that's following you around right now? Oh, he's a hundred percent friendly and he's definitely, he, he's not here now. Cause I just happen to not be home. I usually do do this from home. In fact, he's even like a vi visited us during podcasts. Well, I, I will say this. So, we have a, we have a saying, we have a saying, great Peter Lawford's ghost is, is saying we <laughs> say quite a lot, actually. Uh, it's, it's becoming a thing. I don't know if it is a thing, but it's becoming a thing. But you know, you didn't point. You didn't. The one thing you didn't say, Naomi, was that uh, in the movie uh, Rat Race, 
there's a part where there's like a hundred Lucille Ball like impersonators on this bus with Cuba Gooding Jr. And you played one of them. Oh, actually, that's right. I didn't. I you've already played her. That's actually true. Of. Yes, you know. You're breaking. You're breaking up. You're, do we hear so it? Naomi, yeah. unfortunately, is breaking up Here's a little bit here. But now I'm like, hey. now I actually want to make like a buddy comedy. So where, where I've got Clayton playing uh, Chucky and, and I've got Naomi uh, playing Lucille Ball, and they're uh, doing like a buddy comedy thing. That would be great. I'm just saying it's a possible sequel. Na yeah, I think it sounds like a great idea, Naomi. Um, I don't know if you can get to a better part of the house or maybe uh, switch off something. Uh, Anyway, um, but yeah, she she was uh, she was one of the Lucille Balls. And the funny thing about Naomi is that she's always she she played extras back in the day, you know, because everyone comes up doing something. At Everybody some point. does, yeah. And so she is such a bad extra because she's so big, right? So what I found out just like last week was that she was in She's All That, and I didn't realize. Uh -huh. And I never I've seen that movie. I had to test that shitty movie. <laughs> it's not shitty. It's what it is. <laughs> Anyway, I mean, like, it's not my choice of what I want to watch on a weekday night. But she's at the very end. Freddie Prince Jr. is sitting there, and he's like, he's naked because that's what happens at the end. He lost some bed, and he has to go up and take his diploma as a naked person. And if you, and this is on YouTube, so you can go look up end of like she's all that. And there is Freddie Prince Jr., this like grinning idiot, uh, this handsome idiot. I'm sure he's a nice person. But he's sitting there, and right behind his like left shoulder is Naomi Grossman with her like amazing eyebrows going because he's naked and stuff, completely like you know taking away from Freddie Prince Jr. or whatever. <laughs> yeah, that's just that's just Naomi in a nutshell because like she just takes away. They, they, she told us stories where they'd be like, "Yeah, you're too big. You need to like you know what? We're gonna pay you. Just go go back to the holding. Like <laughs> we don't even want you here right now because you're just too big." And so clearly. She was uh, meant to be a star and stuff. I, I wanted to actually find out um, one more thing about 1BR, and that was, can you, can you reveal approximately what the budget was? Because I'm, I'm very curious, as someone who watches a lot of like, the lower-budget stuff, how people are able to take a small budget and make it look a lot bigger than it is. And I, and I, um, I, I, know, I know that there's some movies I've found out their budgets, and I'm so much more impressed because I know what they were working with versus what you actually see uh, in the final product well i can't I, honestly and sadly i can't tell you the budget uh we, we can talk offline about it one day uh right now i can't uh but uh i will tell you that we got a lot of favors um and you know when you're working all your life and you live in you know los angeles and you you know you you you, you have all these friends around you, right? Oh, well, my college roommate slash high school friend uh, is like one of the best sound editors in, you know, in all of Los Angeles. Like he's done Alice in Wonderland and he's done da da da, -da And like, you know, he just wants to see you succeed. So he's not going to take any money up front. He'll, he'll eventually get paid something when we all make money. But uh, uh, he helped us out with the sound. And sound is so important in a horror movie, for example, right? Or a psychological thriller with elements of horror. Uh, she's, here she is again. Um, everyone, like, you know, took a pay cut to make this movie. Naomi Grossman included, right? Like, she usually gets paid a lot more than, you know, what we could give her. But she did it because she's a friend. Um, I think that's that's sort of weird. And we made, we made everyone sort of, you know, whoever we could when we could, like, you know, sort of partners in this endeavor and, you know, gave them a point here and there where we could if it was successful. But these people made this movie... And knowing uh, that they weren't going to make any money on the movie, and they, 
they were just doing it because they like loved you. They loved who was involved and stuff like that. And so I, I think that's what it comes down to a lot of times um, is you have to like make the connections, be kind to people, do what you got to do to get everyone sort of uh, as a village to make the movie. And that that's what ultimately helps you actually make something of quality because it i know from, from what we shot it for to what it looks like people will always say it again and again like oh it looks so much bigger than it is and whatever else and like this is a no budget movie um you know it, it's a thing where all these people coming together helped it be what it was and they believed in the project they believed in the script and we had an amazing leader in uh, david marmer who's a writer director who we're working with again uh, for his next project, which we can't say anything about because we're trying to J.J. Abrams the shit out of that. But we have a great team and we really want to like, you know, as a family, and we were, I think that's a part of it too, is that we were very kind to people on set. We tried to make sure like, even though we have no money, you know, my mom's making Indian food and like, <laughs> or whatever it is. It's like, we did kind of fun things. And, we, and, and then when, when we actually did premiere at like Fantasia, we tried to bring the cast out and pay for them as much as we could, you know, like their flights and some meals and everything else and, and their accommodation and stuff. We, tried, we, we knew that was important to sort of build the, the mythos of this movie. And we didn't know what people were going to think of it. You know, we, we, we knew from a testing sense, because I used to test movies and we tested the movie. We knew what we could get from that. We knew what we were sort of at. We knew how people would react to it. We knew there was very little rejection. But like I said, coming back to it, it was a team effort. It was a thing where these actors who were so amazing in the movie came out and supported the film and, and helped us have a great launch at Fantasia, which we had like, you know, 26 reviews from, most of which were positive. I think we were like 25 out of the 26 were positive. And it was like Variety and Hollywood Reporter and like Roger Ebert and stuff like that. Like, I mean, it all kind of came from a place of, of, of people wanting to help people make a good movie and being friends. I think that was a huge part of it. I hope I answered the question. I don't know you, if I did. No, you did. You did. I mean, I, I understand like some, sometimes those things are under wraps. I completely get that. I just want to get like a ballpark. But yeah, I think you answered the question. And actually, speaking of the festival circuit, I actually wanted to ask guys if you like, uh, let's get some recommendations. I'd love to know what you guys think. Other movies that you've seen on the festival circuit or just out there in the last little bit. Like, what are some good movies that you guys have seen that you want to shout out and say, hey, check this one out. I think it's really good. Naomi, you you had left us. I, I, Naomi, by the way, I told I told them the story about the Lucia Ball stuff. So I think I've finished your story in that regard. But um, it's it, you're you're, you're oh, oh right. Well, I'll, although I do I, I I'm not sure if I mean I trust that you said it right. But there is some confusion. Sometimes people think that I was actually in the rat rate rat race movie, and I wasn't. Um, I was only hired to be one of those girls to like storm the red carpet when Cuba Gooding Jr. came on. So like, I don't know if you've, uh, some of these Hollywood parties, they need like girls to like be at the party. And, you know, like, for example, I remember working like the nine to five premiere when it, when it came out on Blu-ray or whatever, like I was like hired to like pretend I was a stenographer, like at the party, you know what I mean? Like those kind of people. Like, so that's, I was actually not in the rat race movie. Uh, so you uh, haven't, so you haven't technically been on film as Lucille Ball yet. You're not on film as Lucille Ball yet. So we could, you could still uh, not, not debut. film. Although I, I will, I've been, so here's the thing. 
I, I, those red carpets, the whole point is to get your picture taken. So I have been on still photography film because I know what the hell I'm doing up there. And I, I, of all the Lucille balls, I'm the one who looked right at People Magazine with my mouth <laughs> wide open as Lucy. You can literally see my tonsils. And, like, I look dead on. I mean, we all did. They had, you know, the Lucy hair and makeup and, you know, dresses and whatnot. Uh, but, uh, you know, we basically just, like, partied our asses off that night just like hanging out with cuba goody jr like on the red carpet and 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 Who party. parties and you know par he cuba party. goody jr parties oh, oh. that dude parties exactly no he's a professional and so were we um but you know so technically yes i played her but she has not been played out like that's what i'm trying to say is like i have a lot more lucy in me and you said you had a one-woman so. show that you're now is that a tv show is it a stage show well, actually, I'm hoping it for it to be, um, you, you know, it's sort of written as a stage show. I, I have a couple one woman shows that I've done. Um, and when I did them, they were I basically produced them myself with my own like, you know, actor side job, Spanish teacher <laughs> budget at the time. Um, and, but, you know, they were here in L.A. I did them uh, in New York at, uh, off off Broadway. I took them to the West End in London, Edinburgh Fringe. Uh, I've actually traveled with them along, you know, to to colleges and whatnot. Um, this next one, obviously, who knows when we'll be gathering in theaters again. And for that matter, I'd just assume not be producing any time. You know, I'd rather Alok do the producing. I will do the acting. Uh, and so um, not that he's going to be producing this one. But yes, I do have my site set on. Um, uh, I do have my site set on selling it to a, you know, a streaming service and having it be one of those, you know, hour long comedy specials. I see no reason why not. Um, you know, Mike Berbiglia, uh, John Leguizamo. I mean, they're doing the same sort of work and it's, you know, people are loving it. So why not? You know, we don't yeah, have to gather in theaters to, to enjoy this sort of thing. And you, do you still have connections at the groundlings or like, could you pull people from there? Sure. But it's a one woman show. So I don't, I who see. else do I need? I, gotcha. you know, it's right. You, just, you need a producer. You need, you need a loke to step in and wrangle right. everything. That's it. <laughs> I've got a team and I'm, I'm taken care of. That's awesome. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to checking it out, but I was, I was asking on the way out of here. Yeah. Guys, I know you have to go here. Uh, if you had any movies that you wanted to recommend anything else that you've seen that you think people should check out. I was going to say a knows everything. He's a real like tastemaker as far as film goes. I mean, the guy, first off with one BR itself, he went to every festival. I mean, he was generous enough to take us with him to Avantasia, as he mentioned. But I mean, literally last year, I mean, good thing this happened, that COVID happened this year and last. Not only were we able to capitalize on all the, you know, VAD fabulousness of this year, because there's nothing like when you're quarantined, like stuck in your one bedroom alone at home, to be, be stuck streaming a movie about being struck, stuck alone at home in your one bedroom. But, um, we really like made the most of that. But uh, last year when we were still able to travel and, and, and go have fun and gather in theaters and see movies, Alok was literally like on a plane every week of the year. I swear. It was like, where's Waldo? It was like every, every time I opened my laptop and clicked on Facebook, Alok is uh, somewhere, whether he's like in a bathhouse 
in Scandinavia or like Australia or uh, uh, you know England, you name it, the, the Alps. I mean, it was like you. There was not a single film festival. Well, there were a few film festivals that he missed, but One Br didn't. For example, the Grossman Wine and Horror Festival in Slovenia, we obviously couldn't show up to because, well, COVID. But um, believe me, we, we'd have been there had it not been for, you know, a global pandemic. Did, did but, you just uh, say wine and horror? Festivals. Yeah, it's, it, a, it's a wine horror. and horror festival? Yeah, it's amazing. It's I, like, Yes! That sounds like the, the greatest video. thing ever. It is the greatest thing ever. And we were thinking about still trying to go, oh but you would have been, we would have quarantined in a winery for 14 days before we'd actually be let out. And that's sounds I don't horrible. Want to oh no. I, I I mean it's there's I mean we're my sister-in-law always says that by the time this is all over, we're gonna be alcoholics and diabetics, and I don't need any help. So there that's what it was. So but um but as I said, Clayton actually went to uh, Nightmares uh, festival. Did. And that's an amazing festival. If people don't know about that, it's going to be online this year too. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, they're calling it Masquerade, and they have an amazing selection. I would totally spend the money to see that virtually, you know. Um, but Clayton, um, did you get to see any movies, or do you do you, do you have any horror suggestions for the people uh, for thus far? I know you don't like Clayton's not a big horror movie fan because he's a little scared of it. I'm, I'll be honest. I right? am. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm scared. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm using the one like this. Like, oh gosh. Is it done yet? Is it done? Can I look? Can I look? Okay, it's done. Um, no, I you know I haven't really had a chance to see anything going through festivals. I do have a film that's playing at festivals called Progeny. Uh, it was up at uh, uh, it was Fantasia. up at Fantasia. Uh, it's going to Stitches as well. Uh, at Fantasia, it played in front of a feature film called Fried Berry. Um, I don't know much about it, but. Uh, I'd say if you get a chance to see Progeny on the film circuit, check it out. Uh, is there um, any interest? Any interest in it yet? Like, is there? Do we have to go to the festival circuit right now to see it, or do you think it's going to end up on VOD or on streaming anytime? Or uh, it's, it's I a, mean, it's, it's a short. It's a short. It's a thirty-minute uh-huh. short. It's more like a featurette. Um, I don't think it'll be coming out on video, but I mean, it may end up on some sort of a, a streaming platform with the way that shorts are going now. That there, there's a lot more. Uh, yeah, Shutter's picking up a lot there's of a release. Yeah, so, and it was produced up at the American Film Institute, and uh, a lot of their films, I, I can't think of the name of the platform, just got picked up over to their short platform there, so uh, check it out. It's a sci-fi thriller. Awesome, man. Thank you. I'll, I'll look say, for it for sure. And what about, what about you, Aloki, Mr. Mr. Well, I've seen a million horror films in the last three yeah. days. Well, I'll say this. No, and to, to Clayton's point, there's a ton of short, there's a ton of platforms picking up shorts right now, which is actually really great, I think, for just that sort of medium in some way. Bloody Disgusting just launched something that's on Roku uh, this last week. Um, Alter is a Blue Skies thing. It's on, uh, it's on YouTube. Um, there's like a ton of different places you can actually put that stuff out. So I'm sure uh, Progeny will find a home for sure and we'll get to see it like home, hopefully sometime soon. It's all sort of ad-based in some way. So they will probably put ads in it or whatever. But like, you know, if you get to see it for free, that's not a bad deal. You know? And that's also, you know, it's funny because there used to be a thing in horror where you'd see a lot of like anthology films, like a bunch and it'd be basically you take a bunch of short films and you'd create a framework around it and you get a full length film so maybe that's something that they could they could do with a lot of these shorts too if there's more of those sure being produced you know, there. i'm sure that'll be the case um but like if you want to know my list of things as i'm going to talk about this like this whole week i think or whatever i have a ton of stuff to tell you 
Um, I would say uh, Spiral, which is on Shudder, is like one of my favorite things of the year. There's a movie called Host, also on Shudder, which is great. But there's another movie called Hosts, plural, a uh, British film. It, I will tell you, in my opinion, my humble yet sometimes correct opinion, it's uh, one of the most ferocious horror movies of the year. There is one scene in there you're going to see, holy fuck, holy fuck. You're just like, and, and, and the people who cover their faces are me fucking So not a Clayton faces. film. That's not uh, one for not Clayton. A Clay, not oh, a Clayton okay. film, but an every, everybody else okay. film. But it comes out, that comes out tomorrow. Um, Swallow, I thought was amazing. That premiered at uh, Fantasia with us. Uh, Sputnik, which I just watched today. Fucking awesome. Uh, it is, I, I will tell you, one of the best like sci-fi um creature feature movies i've seen in a while it's a really cool mystery and it unfolds like uh in a great way it's it's a it's a russian film which is you know it's, it's subtitled but it doesn't matter you'll still watch it another russian film which i loved um why don't you just die this guy uh who's the director made friends with him at all these festivals he's he used to be a physicist and he's like the new tarantino so i would tell you that um uh, the Honeymoon Phase is amazing. Uh, platform, which you can see on Netflix. Uh, Bliss. Uh, Joe Bagos, this guy's fucking a deconstructed vampire movie. He did another movie called VFW this year, which was amazing. It's like kind of like uh, John Carpenter's Salt on Precinct something or other, but Stephen Lang, Martin Cope from Cobra Kai, and like Fred Williamson, who unfortunately has gotten involved with some Me Too shit, but we won't talk about him. And that way... Um, uh, what else? La La Rona, which also on Shudder. Uh, it's a amazing Guatemalan horror film. Uh, Monstrum, great like Korean horror film. Kind of it, it, it's as if host the Korean film, the host and Ninja Scroll fucked each other, and this is their baby. Um, that's what you I shout out you. Ninja Scroll? Hell yeah, Fuck dude. yeah, I did. Naomi, Fuck you yeah, weren't kidding. He's got like a he's got a list a mile long. You're not you're not kidding, man. Ah. Homewrecker awesome. is really fun. Uh, and and it's Wars. amazing. I <laughs> I can go on all day. Uh, no, but uh, Home Homewrecker is amazing. Um, it's 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 really the most fucked up film you'll see in a while. Um, and then like Colorado Space is also Shutter right now. Shutter is kind of killing it. If you don't have Shutter for like I don't know, it's four ninety nine. I think I got the the deal year thing or whatever. I bought it for a year. You are missing out because they are just killing it. There are some times where they are just iffy, but right now, like they have literally twenty-five to thirty films that you'd be you'd be watching, you just feel you'd feel good about it. Plus, they have Joe Bob Briggs, who I think is a miracle, like in terms of like horror. Um, do you like him? I love Joe Bob Briggs, absolutely, dude. Oh, my favorite my favorite thing that he does is he does this thing from One Take of the Dead, also an amazing film if you haven't seen it. Uh, where he talks about independent filmmaking, and he call it's called Joe Bob Riggs Keep Rolling, right? And if you're an independent filmmaker, if you want to be an independent film, filmmaker, like he has a thing where he says, "Stop calling yourself. You're not a mechanic. You are a filmmaker. If you spend ten or twenty minutes a day doing what you got to do for your film, then you are a filmmaker. So just watch that. You will be inspired. Don't probably make a cry. Frankly, it's amazing. Yeah, and um, if anyone wants to check out the Last Drive-In, that's on Shutter as well. That's a that's an awesome. Oh. Such a nice yeah. breakdown of all these classic so films, cool. as, as well as new films, to be honest, mm-hmm. or whatever. But um, the other movie I wanted to mention uh, was uh, Dead Dicks, which is, uh, or our friends 
from Fantasia. There, it's a husband-wife duo, writing-directing duo, married, right? How hard is it? It's hard enough to be married, but let alone, like, you know, doing this, right? Um, but this movie is about mental health. It's interesting. Like, it is so it's worth the rental for sure. And it's on iTunes and all the lot of, lot of digital platforms and so forth. Um, yeah. I, I, you know, I feel like I'm speaking so much here, but like, uh, no, you just listed out a ton of great films and that's actually a lot of great suggestions for people to go check out myself included. And I'm looking forward to looking at them all. Um, cool. But I know we do have to wrap up. We got to get you guys out of here. So just, uh, if there's anything that you guys want to promote on the way out, like any, any social media or any, like I know progeny check out progeny. If you guys can make it to the festival circuit or, I don't know how the festival circuit's even working right now with everything that's going on in the world, if it's able to be seen digitally um, right now, but uh, look for progeny. But is there anything else you guys want to uh, want to sort of say or promote or, or say where to find you? Ladies first. Is she I'm not sure if the lady is still with us. Oh, yeah. hold on. She just, she just uh, asked to get back in. Clayton, uh, Clay, you go. Um, I got another film showing at LA shorts. Uh, called Witchin. It's a dark comedy. Uh, it's a really funny, really crazy uh, uh, concept. If you want to follow me on Instagram, the Clayton Hoff. That's my Instagram handle. And remember, because Instagram is very important. That's how people get hired for Alok's films initially. Exactly. And then they Please. demand feminine energy products. So. Exactly. <laughs> so Naomi, I was actually just wondering if, if you had anything that you wanted to promote. Tell anyone your social media or anything like that on the way out. Uh, you know, I'm at uh, Naomi W. Grossman across all platforms. Um, you know, uh, the, the solo show is what I'm mostly, uh, you know, working on right now. So, you know, if you follow me there, you'll know about it when it happens. That's awesome. And I look forward to it. And as uh, Loke, uh, do you want to let people follow you as well? Well, you know, I'm... I am You're the on behind the scenes man. Face, I, I, I'm on Facebook, but no one needs this face. Uh, <laughs> it, it's it's more of a thing where, you know, I, I'm not saying I run our social media allegedly, but one uh, br underscore film is uh, is the Twitter. Uh, if you must Instagram us, I think it's you know just look up one br, you'll find it. Um, yeah, I mean, just you know, come say hi. Listen, if, if the main thing is this: if if you like the film, tell your friends. The the when I used to test movies, we have two scores that really matter to the studios. How did the movie score? Excellent, very good, good, fair, poor, and would you definitely recommend it to a friend? The definitely recommend score is so important because basically it helps us. It's it's better than any trailer we can cut. You telling your friend that this movie is dope is like fucking. That's that does that's ten times better than any amazing trailer I can cut. And I will also tell you this: if you haven't seen the film, go into a cold. Well, and Naomi mentioned this earlier just don't watch a trailer just go fucking see it because I yeah. think you'll be more amazed with it don't listen to this interview until after you've seen the movie so by this point everyone no, should have I seen mean, the damn listen, movie if you, it, yeah if you were listening to it now you've, you know you can still watch yeah, it right. but just, you, <laughs> you, you kind of fucking scolded yeah. <laughs> you know, we, we do kill a cat in it uh, sorry uh, whatever that seems to be the big problem with some certain people a lot of times but um, yeah no but uh, listen I, 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 we appreciate you having us on Ian and it's always I a pleasure to touch you I haven't seen it in a million years and I feel like it's a it's a nice this is a nice reunion of sorts and stuff and uh oh i, I really appreciate you guys coming on it's very sweet of you thank you for giving me your time i really 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 greatly appreciate it and thank you guys for being on the very first interview on horror palooza and with that ladies and gentlemen we are 
done for this season three of Horror Palooza. The marathon has been completed. The interview has been completed. Thank you again to Alok Mishra, Naomi Grossman, and Clayton Hoff from the movie One BR, which of course you can check out on Netflix. Thank you guys for stopping by. Thank you to all of you for listening this year. I appreciate it very much. I always appreciate it. I will be back with more horror movies, horror reviews, horror palooza, and hopefully horror interviews coming up soon. But I have been Sir Ian Dangerous, your Uncle Frank. I'll see you soon right here on... Horror Palooza.